Welcome back to the Dr. Body, Mind, Soul podcast. My name is Dr. Jude, and this is a podcast which explores how we can integrate modern medicine and alternative therapies to help you get the holistic health care that you deserve. I will be speaking to healers and seekers, researchers and authors who will share their experiences and the evidence to help guide us all to holistic health. Let's do this. I'm really excited to introduce Jamie Booth Jenkins is a behavior change, change, a behavior change specialist who lives in Nova Scotia, Canada. I felt it was important to bring you this episode today, right at the start of the year, when many of us are setting New Year's resolutions and examining which behaviors and habits we would like to change. Jamie brings a lifetime of experience and a formal education in social work, applied positive psychology, and the neuroscience of mental health to support others in achieving their personal and professional aspirations with a particular interest in addictions. So welcome, Jamie. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here today. Oh, amazing. So I just want to dive right in because... Let's as, do it. Yeah, as I, as I said, I mean, we're, we're at the season where um, we, we want to make um, some changes in our lives. Um, and I want to know, what do you consider when setting New Year's resolutions and how do we set ourselves up for success? That's a really great question. And I think we're a little bit into it. So some people may have already started failing at their New Year's resolutions. So that is kind of, um, I'll get to how to deal with that. But to start how are you setting and why are you setting a new year's resolution so what are you behavior are you looking at changing and why do you want to change that behavior so is it an external focus do you just think that oh everybody makes the i should go to the gym more resolution and um, people are making resolutions now, so I feel like I have to. Um, what is driving that choice? I think sitting down and really considering why you want to make a resolution is a very good first start to making sure that you're successful in it. I so think really, so. Really getting into the why rather than the what sounds to me like important. It is. It is. And sometimes that can be hard. So you can start with the what. If it comes across your mind, you can be like, okay, I think I should go to the gym more. Um, okay, well, why do I, do I think I should go to the gym more? And then here's where we're going to channel our inner four-year-old because we're not just going to stop at that first why because that first why is pretty obvious. It's like, well, I want to lose weight. Okay, well, why do you want to lose weight? And it's like, well, this is where it starts to get more deep and more into the core of what's driving it. Do you want to lose weight because you don't want to buy new clothes and your clothes are getting tighter? Um, do you want to lose weight because of your health? Are you needing to lose weight? Or are you just doing it because um, you think that society thinks that you should look a certain way? So what is driving that behavior? And if you get down to that, that, the what becomes a lot easier. Um, it becomes a lot simpler to actually follow through on it because you're like, okay, I'm, I'm not just going to the gym because I said I would. You're going to the gym because I actually found after my whys that I deeply care and deeply value my health and I'm going to put that forward for me this year. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like you're yeah, you really, getting to, really getting to the why it makes it easier to connect with, I'm really hearing to really connect with your values, to really connect with what's important to you and mm -hmm. making sure it's coming from you. 
yeah, we want to get deep. If you want to be successful in a New Year's resolution or any sort of change, you want to go down to to really get to what is the core of you and allow that to be your driver um, and allow that to pull you to the behaviors that are helpful to align with that value. Um, and your body will tell you. I think sometimes um, when we're doing behaviors and you kind of get that gut feeling that's like, I don't know if I should be doing this. That's a check. That's, that's a check in saying, okay, am I doing something aligned with my values or not? Um, and as you set these resolutions, you'll start to notice that a little bit more, particularly when you start to get to the point where you're not going to the gym and you're getting distracted and then you start spiraling. So predicting this, knowing that behavior change is hard, otherwise we would do it all the time. <laughs> if it was easy, we would just change our behavior. We'd just say, oh, flip a switch, lights on, lights off. Um, that's not how we work. It's not how our brains are set up to help us. Um, but planning for that failure, planning for the day that you wake up and you hit the snooze instead of going to the gym that day, how do you react to that? Do you allow that to completely derail you? Or do you say, I'm human and this isn't easy and I guess I'm going to go to the gym tomorrow? Or I'm going to walk extra at lunch today because that's still aligned with my goal. Yeah, I yeah, I, I can. I love that. I guess it also gives a lot more flexibility with yourself because if if the if you keep the if you keep the resolution, for example, as I want to go to the gym every day or five days a week or three days a week or whatever, um, and you miss you miss a day, then it can throw you off completely. But actually, if the goal is to feel stronger or to feel fitter or to um, uh, yeah, well, would say, just feel would say, good, just feel, good. feel nice in your body. <laughs> yeah, feel nice in your body, feel comfortable, and um, feel confident. Um, yeah. Then, then it gives you a bit more flexibility in how you how you can achieve that. And, exactly. Um, yeah, which makes which gives you an easier um, an easier uh, goal or approach um, to follow. It gives you more chances for success. Because suddenly, I can tell you about the worst resolution I ever made. And it may be controversial to some of your crew. I did the 30-day yoga challenge. I was like, you're going to do yoga every day for 30 days. I loved yoga before I was going. And I just loved the experience of it. I loved the time. I was doing hot yoga at the time. So I loved, like, shavasana and, like... I loved everything. By the end of those 30 days, I hated yoga and have not been back since mm -hmm. because it wasn't about the experience for me. It was about putting a tick on a calendar. And, and that was really, it, it tainted the experience for me. Whereas if I had said, I want to see how many days I can do yoga in a row for, that would have been way more fun. And it would have been, oh, okay, this week I did three days and next week maybe I'll do four days in a row. And I probably would still be practicing yoga. And I may have a 30 day, 100, 365 day year practice. But because I framed it in that kind of negative, kind of like bar marking way, it really made me fail. I guess it's like when you turn 
when you turn an intention into a have to, um, this sort of like, um, th then it's, it almost gives you a, a stick to beat yourself with. Mm -hmm. Which is just, which layers, which layers and can compound the initial problem and goal. And as you say, like actually take away a joy, um, which, which is really counterproductive. And let's be honest, we don't need any more sticks to beat ourselves up with. We are very good at it. And that tends to be the thing that gets in the way of our actual behavior change. Whereas if we're gentle with ourselves, like we would be with, some, with a loved one or a friend or a patient or a client, um, we wouldn't beat them with a stick. We'd be like, no, that's, that's okay. You can go tomorrow. <laughs> it's not really a big deal. Um, but when it's ourselves, we do. And, and that tends to be the biggest reason that people fail at their resolutions is that they hold themselves to an impossible standard of being perfect at it or making that change immediately or seeing results instantaneously when if we're gentle with ourselves and we're saying, okay, these things are going to take time and I'm not going to be perfect at it. And I'm going to plan for my, for my road bumps and I'm going to have a plan for, for what happens when I fall off the wagon and how do I get myself back on and, and think like that. It gives us permission to be human, which makes it a lot easier to change your behavior. And what, I mean, I guess like the, the tricky part is, is that like with, um, I guess, uh, wanting to adopt a new habit or, and I'm speaking from just personal experience, there's, there's um, part of you that does need to be kind to yourself and allow yourself to fall down and be able to get yourself back on. But then there's also the need to cultivate discipline, I, you know, in, in some way, which, um, and as you say, there is a toughness, there's always going to be a toughness in any behavior change. And I'm kind of interested, like where or how do you negotiate that sort of need for, for discipline or, or, or uh, some sort Practice. of grit, grit, but say that mm -hmm. again, practice. Practice. Okay. So yeah, mm. yeah, I guess you're using a word like practice already softens that sort of uh, term I was using, which was discipline. So how, how, how do you, yeah, how do you negotiate that space? Like the need to be a bit more firm with yourself if you're going to make a, a, a change, which requires um, something to be different, you to show up in a different way, which can be difficult because um, it's going to be new and you've avoided it for some period of your life. Um, so how do you sort of yeah, show up with that sort of determination or, or, or new attitude while also being kind with yourself? Yeah, and I think it, I, I frame it as practice because practice is something that you have to do if you, if you want to become good at something. Um, but it's a place for you to experiment as well. So when you do come off and you, you hit that thing and you're not beating with your stick, the other extreme, of course, is just completely letting yourself off the hook and going back to the behaviors. So that's why I think planning for those failures is essential. So in the addictions world, when people are going through treatment, they don't just get sent out into the world after they've learned a little bit about themselves. They plan for it. They say, okay, 
where am I going to get hung up? Where is this going to be a challenge for me? And what am I going to do when it becomes a challenge? Who am I going to call? Um, do I have somebody that holds me accountable? Am I doing that with somebody? Um, or uh, do I have to plan to avoid some of these situations? Do I have to? So I think it's, it's not about um, letting yourself off the hook, but evaluating it and saying, okay, I've, I've fallen off. I stopped. Pull myself back. Okay, let's reconnect with my why. Maybe I fell off because my what and my how isn't aligned with my life. It's just too challenging to get. I've got two kids. How am I going to get to the gym every morning? This is unrealistic. So maybe the what is the problem. But stepping back and into your why and saying, okay, I've fallen off. Why? Um, first of all, the, that, that first why is why did I fall off? So is it that thing? And second of all, why am I t undertaking this behavior change? And it, and it may be that you didn't go deep enough that first time and you're operating from a place of, well, I really don't value going to the gym or my, or my health. I just thought I should look good in my jeans, um, which again, isn't a bad thing. I love looking good in jeans, but it's not driving. It's just like it's an added benefit of having good health <laughs> and feeling comfortable within my, within my body because there's a lot of different sizes of jeans that a lot of butts can look good in. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm into that. Um, so yeah, so, so, so yeah, if, if you do fall off the wagon, I'm really hearing like just to be curious about, about what it is that, that, that has led to you falling off, reconnecting with why you wanted to change that behavior in the first place and sort of reassessing like, is there a different way you can achieve that in something in a way that actually feels better to you and mm -hmm. um, to make it more sustainable. And also, um, there was something else and I've just really forgotten it. Uh, it may come back. I'm not sure. That's all right. <laughs> yeah. It came up twice and it was so close. Um, reconnecting with the why, reconnecting with the why. And then maybe also like re recommitting and saying, um, okay, like it's not, I've, I've accepted that I fell off my, my yoga wagon. Um, I, I understand that it is actually a deep value. It's not that difficult. I'm going to recommit to doing this. Um, and just kind of allowing yourself to move on. Like, don't get stuck in it. <laughs> That's right. Actually, what I was going to say was, um, is prepare, is, is mm. actually sort of understanding yourself. It, 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 there's, there's such value to, as you said, prepare for the hurdles, not just because, not just because you know, you can then uh, arrive at them, you know, that may be one way that, that that's also useful. But what I actually also found really useful is taking that time to really examine how you tend to kid yourself. What, mm -hmm. what kind of thoughts come up when you're trying to get out of something? What, um, how do you normally avoid what do you normally, you know, what do what what have been your patterns? Where so that really, it's an opportunity for you to get to know yourself mm -hmm. a little bit more deeply, so you can catch you playing at your own game in a way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's part of it. It's all part of it. Like like 
like we said, like it's not a switch that flips and things happen. Um, if everything is smooth sailing, um, what do they say? Smooth water has never made skilled sailors. And it's, it is these blips, it is these times we fall off that we learn more about ourselves and we learn more about what is gonna throw us off, but also what's gonna pull us through. So what are those strengths that are making me successful? Um, and in the addictions world, we I always say, you know what, relapses are not really relapses. They're just slips, they're dips, they're a challenge that you overcome and you go back. It doesn't negate all the things that you did. Um, if I had gone to 29 days of yoga and missed that 30th day, do I miss out on the benefit of the 29? No, I <laughs> still got all that benefit. Um, so it's just that reframe for yourself. Yeah. And, 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 and it's that it's, I guess it's just committing more. There's some sort of, there's something I want to say about this sort of recommitting to the path of growth. It may be that through this exercise, you actually start to really understand what your values are. Because when you look at, when, when you actually look at your life, um, you can very quick you can very clearly understand your values by what you are already doing so you know what do you spend your time thinking about what do you spend your time talking about what do you spend your money on what do you spend your time what do you spend your you know what what do you spend your time thinking about what what do you you know what do you spend your time doing these are all clues to take stock of actually what your values are right now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you, um, if you go through an exercise and you want to change, you want to change something, it just may be that you, it's an exercise in getting to know yourself a little bit better and saying, you know what, I obviously don't value my health that much because actually I know that when I value something, I am really successful there. Like I put all my energy there and actually I'm not doing that in this instance, which is telling me something. It's actually giving me information about myself that, mm -hmm. you know what, right now in this moment, health is not my priority. It's just not. Um, and I'm okay to accept that. Right now, I'm a mother, I'm a father, I'm a, I've, you know, I've got this really big test, I'm, you know, I'm really committed to my work. And just that level of acceptance of where we are right now, mm -hmm. even though it may not be where we perhaps want to be, is the first step. Exactly. Exactly. Um, like you have to start where you are. You can't start 10 steps ahead. And I think often we want to be 10 steps ahead and that often prevents us from stopping and not starting. You don't want to be that kid on your training wheels or falling over. Right. But we all have to, that's, that's how we learn. That's how um, our brains work. And, and to be fair, behavior change is hard because our brains aren't set up to love change. Our brains really like taking paths of least resistance. And the well-trodden path is the one it's going to take the vast majority of the time. So you're fighting against your natural biology when you're doing this. So it's going to be difficult. 
Yeah, so so there needs to be a, a, a dose of kindness and also an expectation that 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 for real change there there will be there will be uh, difficulties and times you fall off. And I guess I'm really hearing that um, if an attitude um, of um, I, I guess I'm really hearing it it, it, it sounds as though it would be really helpful if you are committing to growth in some way because growth mm -hmm. inherently will um, have uh, obstacles and hurdles. And as long as we stay curious in those times about what's causing them, how we react, um, then we get to know ourselves better. And, and, uh, and I guess that a new resolution may be a window into, or an invitation to us to evaluate where we are right now Mm -hmm. and where we really want to be look at why that is the case and why there is a gap and that's probably a good place to start mm -hmm. and then I think the follow-on of that would be what's the smallest step that I can take towards that we tend to try to like go for the big thing but it's like okay like the 30 days of yoga it's like well what's the smallest thing well I can get up in the morning and stretch today and then, so these little tiny things, we don't have to do it quickly. And then I think the other, the last thing that would really set us up for success is finding somebody or a community that can support you in that. So finding at least one other person that can be that person that you go to and be like, oh, I didn't go today. And they can give you that compassion and they can kickstart you and they can be like, okay, well, we'll go tomorrow. Or they can be that partner in it because we're humans. We're not meant to be in isolation. We're meant to be in community. And so relying on that is, is helpful. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. I know, um, I certainly know that I am much more likely to go for a run when um, I have someone to go with. Um, and and I've, I've realized that, I, I've realized that. So like when I have um, my running buddy um, in the country and we can go for runs, then I schedule them for then. And the other times when I find that really hard, I just prefer to go for a walk and yep. um, and I allow that you know it's just like I actually with the key is like getting some fresh air and feeling like I've moved and um taking a break rather and than maybe maybe the driver is is that relationship piece maybe that's a way for you to like say okay I, like, I really don't like running but I really value relationship and this person's really cool and this is something we can do together yeah yeah, yeah. I, I think having yeah having having a little accountability partner um is such is such an important part of the piece. Mm -hmm. Well, it connects us at a deeper level, and I think that's what we're all looking for. Mm. Now, Jamie, I really came across you and your work um, when I heard about your perspective on addiction, and mm -hmm. I am hoping you can share with us about how you frame addiction and take us through the sort of cultural context which often subconsciously inform our own view of addiction on addicts and of substance of substance use in general so yeah could you can you go through that for us yeah 
Yeah, I, I definitely can. And, and I've been working in the behavior change through addictions because it tends to be kind of the extreme. It is a, it is a behavior change that uh, people externally look at and it's like, yeah, you, you probably should do that. Um, so for me, my view of addictions has really grown um, as my education around it has and as my time with people dealing with addictions um, has grown and, and spending more time with the actual person. So if we go back historically, historically addiction was viewed as a moral flaw. There was something wrong with you because you needed to drink too much to get through the day. So, And this was not aligned with the moral code that we are supposed to abide by. So the addicts became wrong. They were bad. They were a bad person. This shifted, it tried to shift in the, the mid-50s in the United States to being a more medical model of addiction. And that's majority where we are today is they define addiction as a persistent um, brain disease. So you don't have a fundamental flaw anymore, but your brain does. Um, you have a brain disease, um, a permanent brain disease, they say, um, that has changed your brain fundamentally that you now have this flaw. You are, um, the people call it like an addictive personality or the flaw still resides within the person. Um, and this was a, an attempt to, it, it came from a good place. It came from an attempt to move the responsibility from just the individual to more of a system and say, okay, they're, they're not wrong. They're sick. They're ill. And like other ill people, they deserve treatment and they deserve to be treated in this way. And that's kind of where we've ended up with the treatment um, of addictions, people go into detox and they go into rehab and then there's this system um, in place. But what that really fails to take into account is the social and the um, structural causes of, of addiction. And if we take brain science and we look at what happens in the brain when somebody is addicted, Yes, there are fundamental structure changes in the, in the brain. Those pathways within the reward center um, get hijacked. It, it kind of goes haywire a little bit in there, and it is a very difficult thing to change. But cab drivers in London also have permanent brain changes when they go through taxi driver changing or training because in order to pass their test, they have to know every single road in London. And they find that their brains change and they have permanent pathways changed. And the idea that our brain doesn't change and doesn't um, have some of these um, differences based on our behaviors is a flawed one. And so what we've done is we've said addiction is special and addiction makes it a disease and this is what you got forever. But we don't say that a taxi driver has a taxi driving disease. 
Um, but the changes in the brain are not the same, but they both change. So what, what is happening? Really, yeah, what you're really speaking to is is the fact that our brains are neuroplastic, and I uh, and whichever when when there's any repetitive behavior of which addiction is one, the brain is going to be fundamentally um, different, but it's more as a result of um, a behavior rather than a behavior causing um, the brain change. Have I got that? Yeah, and I think some people think that that the drug itself changes the brain and that, that there's this chemical hook. And well, yes, um, the boosts that you get in your neurotransmitters from certain drugs definitely make them a quicker pathway to be formed. It's not necessarily true. So I think the best way to describe it is as a learned behavior. So um, actually, I, I learned this myself through Dr. Mark Lewis, who himself is a neuroscientist, who himself had a pretty significant um, heroin addiction as he was going through his psychology training. He was meant to be giving the heroin to the rats. He did not do so. So he eventually came out of it and now he has started to study what is actually happening in the brain and what he posits and proposes is that when we do things how our brain works is through a reward system so if i go out and i find a source of food my brain gives me a little bump so that i learn that when i do this i get food i get a bump and then we repeat 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 and just like walking on a field of snow. It is winter in Canada now, so walking through the snow is pretty prevalent. You're gonna walk on those paths that you've taken before, and the more you walk on them, the deeper they get. And that's really what's happening with addiction is that generally people just don't start being addicted to things. They, they learn that they get some sort of benefit from it. So um, social drinking is a great, um, example of that. Some people say, I, I, I just really can't go out with my friends. It's just a lot easier if I have that drink. So what they're saying to me is that they have some social anxiety in which they feel they cannot be themselves out in public. What helps them is having a drink. Now they've learned that when I feel social anxiety, I have a drink and that's alleviated. Your brain is like, well, that's a great thing. I don't like feeling anxious. And all I have to do is have a drink. Well, the next time I feel some sort of anxiety, the brain's going to be like, you know what actually helps that is that drink. And that happens more and more and more. And then because you've taken that pathway so many times, it just becomes... Um, habit. You don't even think anymore. You're not like, oh, I need a drink to be social. It's just I'm drinking now, if that makes sense. That does make sense because um, I think particularly um, here in the UK, drinking is so normalized and, is, and, and we do that um, in the majority of our social um, encounters. So drink is very much associated um, with just just being social and we don't ever stop to think about um to, to think to, to think about whether or not we could do that without a drink and I um I, I stopped drinking for a month I did a sober month uh last year I think last October and um it was so interesting because um when I 
when I sort of tried that, I re I realized myself like what I felt uncomfortable doing, why I felt uncomfortable doing it, um, how difficult it was to say, um, or in, in what situations I found it difficult to not um, partake in a drink, who whose judgment I was concerned about. Yeah. Um, you know, it was really what I felt it was saying about me. Um, all of these questions just came up just through a uh, short episode, it just realized, I realized my relationship to alcohol when I challenged myself not to drink it for a short period of time. Mm -hmm. And it was so, it was such an interesting exercise. Yeah. And I, th I think, I think maybe some of the listeners are probably relating to that difficulty right now because we're a little ways in and maybe some of them have taken that I'm not going to drink this year or even this month of January after indulging on New Year's or, um, or that. So there may be some people out there who are really like nodding along with you right now being like, I never thought it was going to be like this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I remember like going out for, for dates. And I'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm going to go out for a date. You know, so I'm meeting a stranger um, and I'm going to be introducing myself as someone that doesn't drink or isn't drinking right now. What are they going to think of me? What do I think of myself right now? Am I going to manage a date without a drink? Like it was so, yeah. it was so interesting to see what situations I felt like uncomfortable in and what situations not so much. And yeah, and whose judgment I was really worried about. Um, so, so yeah, really, it was a really interesting exercise. And what I, what I also wanted to, to draw upon is like, you know, the, the, what we, the substances that we go towards have, have a benefit as you were just saying. So like alcohol does have that lubricating quality, which is why it's so widely used in our culture. We need to socialize. It's important mm -hmm. for us to socialize. And, al and alcohol is used almost globally, um, ceremoniously, or, well, I say almost globally because actually there are... I believe there's only one culture in the world that doesn't have um, drink or drugs um, as part of their culture in some way. And wow. that would be the, the Inuit in, in Canada, and it's simply because they don't Wow. Yeah. I mean, it, alcohol is so widely, widely used. I remember watching a program called Tribe and uh, there was a, there was like this really far out African tribe and they were making alcohol out of fermented, um, God knows, I can't remember what it was, but this for, for the for honey, I think the, ferment, the fermentation, you know, of, of, of plants. It is, is a really ancient um, ritual and tradition and we reach for it to help us socialize and socializing is because socializing is such a key um, part of our experience. And I think that we have to um, understand that when people are reaching for any substance, um, that there is a benefit um, to to that substance for them. I mean, um, if we take, um, I mean, well, could you give us an example of that? I mean, from your experience? Yeah, I think um, the one, like there, it always starts off as having some sort of benefit. And, and I think I think what you're getting at, and I think what comes across for me when you, you say that is that it's never really about the thing. So it's never about, like, I am, 
I am not here to tell somebody not to have a drink with their friends at night. Like, I am not trying to take anybody's party away. I see great value in that. Um, there is beneficial, there is safe use, there are a lot of ways that we that we come at our relationship with substance. And um, we can, it, it doesn't necessarily also have to be a substance like alcohol or drugs. We can get addicted to sex. We can get addicted to video games, TV. There's so many things that food, we can have a food addiction. So there's so many things that you wouldn't argue that food isn't inherently beneficial to us. We have to ingest food, but it's the relationship with that food. So it goes back to that initial question. Why? Why am I reaching for this, for this drink? And one thing I noticed particularly with youth when I worked in youth addiction is that they would always tell me, they would always say, Jamie, I, like, I have to smoke a joint before I go to sleep or I can't sleep. And I was like, oh, really? Because <laughs> I promise you that you will eventually fall asleep. Like, it's just, it's going to happen. But they found benefit. They said, you know what? And maybe it was their brains were going crazy at night and they couldn't go to sleep. Um, they found a benefit. And, and it tends to be that sometimes, and I don't want to make a value judgment on the substance because I'm not about that, but sometimes the substance is the easier, faster way. So some, yes, I'm not going to argue with a kid who says a joint helps me sleep at night. I bet it does. I bet it's fantastic sleep. However, it is not the only way to overcome that sleep challenge. If you're not um, sleeping because you're having uh, racing thoughts and your heart is pounding, you're actually experiencing anxiety before bed. And maybe you need to do some grounding exercises. And no, they're likely not going to be as instantaneous as the joint or as fun as the joint, but they're going to serve the same benefit. And I think that's the key is that there are benefits to everything, but when we start moving and having that be our only go-to, um, or we lose the ability to see another option, um, or we're doing it unconsciously, so without, uh, not unconsciously, I like saying mindlessly, mindlessness. Mind the opposite of mindful. Mind <laughs> Mindlessness. Yeah, mindlessly. There you go. Yeah, if we're, if we're not engaging that prefrontal cortex, that front thinking part of our brain, then we're just going by habit and that's probably where our challenges are going to come. Because like I said, and like we started, there's some benefit. Yes, it's easier to go out and have friend and have a social time with and especially a date. I admire you for going on dates without having a drink. Don't know if I could have done that, but you did it. <laughs> you made it through and you were like, oh, actually, again, I just learned something about myself. I learned that I don't need that wine. I want it. <laughs> and that's a really big difference. There's a couple of things like that I want to pick up from what you're saying is I think that um, as you say at the start 
or, or, or in our relationship to these substances, we just need to be aware of um, that there is a benefit. Like I'm also thinking about um, cocaine. There's a benefit of taking cocaine. You feel more confident. So mm-hmm. there, you know, it's going to. It, you feel. You feel. You feel more alert. You feel more. You, you know. You feel more confident. So mm-hmm. like I. So there is a benefit to why someone is reaching for that substance. But as you say, if that's the only way you can feel confident or you can get some sleep or you can manage to go out on a date, then there's then I think we're well, is that, you know, then I, I think we're getting into um, r- rather than use where you were sort of there's some sort of reliance um, on it on on. On, on substance and I know you have a way of describing the the um the different sort of stages of substance yeah, use. yeah can you go through that with us sure um I I grew up in the mountains and and when you go skiing I don't know if this is the same in in the UK I don't know if it's universal so maybe you can be my first test to tell me if it's universal rating system but when you go skiing, they, they have labels on the runs so that you don't go on a run that is far more advanced than you are. So it starts off with the green runs. These are the bunny hills. And for me, in substance, this is the beneficial use. This is having your cup of coffee in the morning to get your caffeine so that you start moving. This is taking your medications as prescribed by your doctor. Um, There's a lot of benefit to to doing that. Um, This is ceremonial and spiritual use of psychedelics and, and guided things. There is like that beneficial use. And then for me, as you move up and, and um, move more into different intensity, then you start using um, substance use. And these is the blue runs. Um, and substance use is, I party on the weekends. I use it as like a way to, to relax. I'm, I'm just using a substance. I, I can take it or leave it. I don't do it every weekend. I don't even like, it's just something I use. And then we move into the black I'm diamond. Really, yeah, really, go ahead. Yeah, I'm really hearing the difference between uh, the uh, and the difference in in the green to the blue run. There, I'm hearing is like is context and also awareness. So, like, just like there, there's there's a, in the green. There, what was the first word you used for the green run? Substance. So ben- beneficial use. Beneficial use. The beneficial use. So using it. Um, using it with awareness to bring you a benefit yeah and then there's uh there's a moving to the green run where it becomes it's more habitual you're not really conscious of why you're using it you're not using it for its particular benefit consciously but you are using it yeah but it's more of a take it or leave it thing it's more of a uh, today maybe I'll have a couple drinks tomorrow I won't like it's not playing any real role in your life. It's kind of, if we're going to use the relationship analogy, it's kind of like a distant friend you see every once in a while. It's not really a, not really a close friend, but yeah, you, you like hanging out with them. Um, and it's, and it's fun and it's not causing, I think that one of the biggest differentiators between this and the next step is that it's not causing any harm in your life. You're not using or drinking so much that there's a lot of physical damage. I mean, acknowledging that there's always going to be some sort of physical damage, um, but even in beneficial use, but like it's, it's not to the point where 
it's causing you problems. Um, then we step it up into the black diamond and that's where we're starting to abuse things. So that's, um, I, I don't just have one cup of coffee. I have 10 cups of coffee in the morning because I can't actually wake up without it. And then um, I can't sleep at night because I've had so much coffee. So now I'm going to start using cannabis to go to sleep or, oh, I really need to get through my day and I can't. So I'm going to continually do lines all throughout the day to keep me going. Um, that's really the abuse of the benefit that you used to get. It used to be beneficial, but now you're starting to abuse that privilege almost, um, it's just becoming a little bit too much go-to. You may start noticing an escalation in your using behaviors. So you may go from smoking something to injecting it. You may go from being only a user when you're out with your friends to I'm at home when I get home from the club doing lines by myself. That's where we start moving into that abuse. And when it comes to be that full-blown addiction that double black diamond this is like you are there's cliffs that you have to jump over there's a lot of danger involved in these runs um that's when you hit full-blown addiction and for me that's when um they call it the three c's uh it's compulsive so you don't really have a choice it's i feel um like i need to i i, I wake up in the morning and i need to do that line um, then there's the craving. So when you don't have it, you, that's all you can think about. It's, oh man, like I can't wait until like this person leaves so I can do my next bump. It starts to be that like longing for something that you don't immediately have. And then the final one is that it doesn't matter what the consequences you're going to use anyway. At this point, you're probably losing friends. You're not showing up for work. Um, I'm going to put a caveat in that because there are a lot of high functioning addicts um, who do show up for work constantly and who don't uh, lose relationships. So that's not the necessarily the greatest, but there is physical consequences. There is always some sort of consequence, whether we can see it or acknowledge it or not. Yeah. And, and, and what I'm sort of curious about is it's when people hit that stage of use that we tend to really judge the person who's in 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 that um, state because um, we feel that they are morally corrupt. They have made a lot of terrible choices, um, or we think they're sick and 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 they have no they, they can't help it what but we blame them for their illness that's one of the illnesses that we blame people for it's similar to some of the more of the the sexually transmitted diseases we're like well that's your fault that you got it right like it's well no that's not how it works because if if you remember we started off down in green and blue and everybody was having fun and everybody occasionally did their lines and then somebody just went too far and and they don't intentionally do that nobody intends to end up on the black diamond no well they don't they don't want to be there um but we do we judge them and we judge the substance too so we 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 not only say people with addictions are bad but then we start separating them into well the alcoholic is probably better than the person addicted to cocaine who's probably better than the person who's addicted to heroin and let's not even start talking about meth like we, 
there are so many judgments that we make when ultimately the person underneath that was using for something. So where is the human underneath this mask of what we call addiction? That's right. I think that's forgotten all too easily is that we, um, you know, there, there, there is a benefit or was a benefit to, um, to the person using, um, whether, whether that was because of, um, crippling anxiety or whether that was because they couldn't sleep or whether that's because they were, they had really low self-esteem, there was, or, or it was available in their neighborhood, you know, like it was available and they're impressionable, um, at the age at which it's introduced, um, and then, you know, society um, really judges them for, for being addicted and depending on what they're addicted to, the, the judgment seems to really vary. So, um, yeah, I find that really sad. And I do think there's a big gap in the healthcare system for how we approach um, those with an addiction because, um, yeah, the resources seem really sparse in that area. And almost because there is this judgment that we um, we overlay, it can really it really affects how we treat the person, um, which which I think compounds the problem. Yeah, and I think I mean we can't gloss over the fact that it can be very difficult to work with people who are in active addiction. It is they are not pleasant often. It's not um, yeah it's. And especially like, I, I don't want anybody who's listening, who is in a relationship or has somebody in their family um, dealing with somebody with addictions. That's probably one of the hardest things to do is that as this, if we want to call it an illness or whatever we want to call it, how it manifests itself in behavior is very difficult. And that's, I think, sometimes what we react to. So it is very hard, but very important as mental health practitioners and the health practitioners to kind of take a step back and understand that there is the person underneath that and the behavior is difficult. <laughs> Not what anybody would want to deal with. So I think sometimes um, that gets confounded and I think that's sometimes what we react to. And I wonder, and it's just a curiosity and I'm interested to hear what you say about it, but like I wonder, because often the things that we find super challenging in others is because we are also judging or um, disowning the parts of ourselves that we see in other people. So there's like a projection piece as well. And and don't get me wrong, I really do hear what you say. I mean, working in A&E, I really do see people in the, the in the throes of their addiction and you are right it's really challenging behavior super frustrating um, and um, difficult on multiple levels actually um, so so but also heartbreaking because I know underneath those addictions there's um, someone who's really struggling and whether that's as you say as with and that's there's, there's someone just really struggling um, and it's mm. how do we best approach um, how do we best approach that like you know it, 
Well, and I think that's where we come up to the challenge of, of the med and, and where we hit the limits of the medical model of addiction and in some ways the medical treatment of mental health. So addiction and mental health are, are similar in a lot of ways because a lot of the reasons that people are treating themselves um, is, is a mental way. Yes, there's probably physical ways that they're treating themselves with their um, substance of choice as well. But a lot of the times it is that mental health thing. And so when we try to put... Can you rephrase that, Jamie? Because like, I, yeah. I think what you're saying is that mental health and addiction are really closely linked and many people are self-medicating. Is that right? For, with, with a substance for their mental health? Is that what you're trying to say? Or Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think if we go back to that benefit... Some of the benefit is that alleviation of, of perhaps a mental health challenge. Like we said, that anxiety or um, depression, or they're trying to get themselves out and they found something that works. Um, and as we've seen, and, well, in the opiate crisis that's been taking over America, there's been a lot, a real um, escalation in the use of opiates to treat a physical um, health uh, problem often. And we've seen such a huge rise in those who had pain, back pain or, or pain, post-operative pain, who then escalated into full-blown uh, opiate addiction. So as we, yeah. as I really want to stress, there is a beneficial, yes. there's, there's always a benefit to the use. And what I'm so glad we're coming to talk about is the fact that that, and I just hope you can phrase this in a real way because I want to capture it, is like that the beneficial use is, is, is often to self-medicate a mental or physical problem. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that goes again to the why of the use. So if you're just using, cause every once in a while you like having fun with your friends, but again, if you're using it all the time, because it's your only go-to, you need to address that core, that core thing. And when somebody's presenting in, in your, uh, A&E, you, you can't, they, you don't have, you don't have a band aid or you don't have a guideline that says when somebody comes in with a heart attack, we do X, Y, Z, and we know how to deal with that. We've done a disservice to both service users and service providers by trying to shove some of this under the, the medical model and the medical treatment system, because it doesn't necessarily work. And it doesn't necessarily work for a few reasons. And the main one goes back to that, how we change our behavior. So the goal is to have somebody change the behavior and not use the substance that as they are anymore. That is the goal of treatment. But how we go about it is, is not necessarily the right way. There's a lot of places where if you want to get treatment for that underlying why, you have to be sober first. Well, how is that going to work? <laughs> Like, how do you expect? And it's very, very difficult for people to do. Secondly, in order to make that behavior change, remember what we talked about. You have to believe that you're able to do it. And if you are being told that you now have a permanent brain disease that will never go away and will constantly be there, and makes you behave in ways that are at, like make you, your family hate you, make everybody hate you, make you hate yourself. Are you really gonna be like, oh well, like great, like I'm have I'm gonna have this for life. So what? And so we need to really look at how we're treating because it's not fair to docs in the A and E to say, well, we've got this person who has an addiction who really has underlying anxiety, treat it. 
that there there's um there's there's uh we, we do we for we a and are definitely not set up for for this and 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 what i find kind of heartbreaking is that we uh all we can do is send them to um our local um turning point um which they're often called um nice. <laughs> you know so, and, and and for acceptance within the programs they need to be sober but how can somebody get to being sober when their underlying kind of motivation for that drives their addiction or has has driven their addiction if it's not being addressed um it leaves that person really stranded um and and that kind of it's heartbreaking for me it is and especially if i mean probably one of the most abused substances after nicotine is is alcohol and you can't just stop drinking <laughs> like there there's medical reasons why you can't just become sober and and i think we have unrealistic expectations of people to just kind of turn a switch or hit a turning point and just say okay like this is it like um yeah it's it's a it's a difficult thing and i empathize a lot and i think maybe that sometimes drives some of the stigma that goes along with with people with addictions in those because doctors and nurses must be so frustrated because I'm sure they get the frequent flyers that are in there all the time and they don't have a system to deal with it and it's difficult to change a entire system and so sometimes the frustration comes out on that individual as it's their problem. I think I, I can really see that happening. Um, and yet what breaks my heart is that actually we're not supporting these people to make the necessary changes that they need to make. So, and, and then we, and then we, and then we judge them um, for not being able to make those changes. So mm -hmm. it becomes a really um, toxic um, cycle. Um, so and really we've created a society that, instead of asking like, why would you? It's like, well, yeah, like, why wouldn't you? Like, we've created a society that has inequities everywhere, whether they're social, whether they're economic, whether they're physical, we have created a system and a place that is just not welcoming to people who are less than perfect. And the reality is, every single human is less than perfect. And I think you, you touched on it a little when you said um, there's this a little bit of fear looking at somebody who is in active addiction, because I think part of us knows none of us are that far away. And it may feel like it because I don't actively use a lot of substance, but there's something that I'm doing that is avoiding what I should be dealing with. And what I really want maybe is connection with my friends. I don't want a bottle of wine, but I don't know how to ask them come over without that bottle of wine and and say you know what I'm actually feeling really lonely um and I would really just like some human connection it's like oh come over for a drink <laughs> right so it's yeah and, and which really takes us into the why of, of of really getting underneath the why we are using I think if we just open up um the awareness um just like create a little bit of space um into um into our thought process of when we tend to make the choice to reach for a glass of wine or to reach for a cigarette 
or to reach for a, a joint? What, what, what emotional state were you in just at that point when you made the decision to reach for the substance? Because as we talked about, there's a benefit to the substance in the moment and it's just catching yourself in that to become aware of what your trigger is. Yeah, and I think that that's a really, a really good connection between somebody trying to make just a, not just because it is often big, but a, a New Year's resolution or a behavior change in that addiction, because you can take some of the skills that we teach people dealing with addictions and apply it to the same thing. So we can use it to check our relationship with substance or with some behavior in our life. And um, a skill that can be useful is when you do find yourself like, oh, I could really use a drink after today. Today was a long day and I could really use a glass of wine or a pint to get over it. I'm not judging that. It's fine. But before you do that, um, maybe give yourself a pause and engage some of that frontal part of your brain so that it isn't that habitual, I've had a bad day, I'm going to grab that glass of wine. It's, okay, I've had a bad day, I want to grab that glass of wine, but I'm going to do these three things first. Um, the three D's, I'm going to delay. So I'm not going to immediately grab, I have the craving, I want the wine, I'm immediately going and pouring the glass. Instead, I'm going to say, not never, I'm going to say, I'm, I'm not going to drink. I'm going to say, I'm going to give myself 10, 15 minutes and reevaluate if that's, that's what I'm going for. So I'm, first I'm going to delay, then I'm going to distract myself. So I'm not sitting there in front of the glass of wine with my like timer saying, okay, here's my 15 minutes. I'm going to go do something else. Probably most helpfully, something physical, doing the dishes, folding laundry, going for a walk, something that gets you into your body and out of your brain. Um, and then I'm going to do the final D and then I'm going to decide, okay, my time limit is up. I've done the thing. Do I still want that glass of wine? The answer may very well be yes. Go ahead. If it's yes and you think you're trying to change that behavior, try the three D's again. Okay, I'll do it again and I'll check in. Or just have the glass of wine. <laughs> like It's not necessarily the worst thing. It is if it is an addiction that you're trying to battle. But again, giving yourself that space and checking in with, is this what I want? Is it just a thing that I do every day? Um, and then just giving yourself a little bit more opportunity to have an informed decision um, can really help. It really helps. Those are three great strategies and such an easy way to remember them. So um, I love that. I've never heard of that before. Um, but I, I, from my own experience, just even creating the space to recognize the emotional state that is that is calling me to whatever substance I'm feeling called to, whether mm. that, yeah, it um, was really helpful just to gain an awareness that actually I'm seeking, I'm seeking a change of state mm -hmm. and that's what's driving me to, to the substance. So, um, that's really, I like that. I like that change of state idea. 
yeah yeah i want to get out of the way i'm feeling and the quick a quick way of achieving that is by using um whatever um plant is available and i'm saying plant like because i'm using like that as uh, i mean as a really uh inclusive That's the broadway it is very inclusive, inclusive way of, of, of describing any sort of drug if we talk about cocaine if we talk about um, tobacco if we talk about alcohol these are you know plant uh, plants that, that that humans have, have adapted to use um, as I say and have a benefit to but when we are using them to cope with um, difficult emotional states and they're the only way that we, that we can um, cope with those emotional states they'll become habits that then have um, quite significant side effects and can really derail our whole lives as I'm sure um, they can yeah, they can. Um, yeah. They, they can. Um, but but bringing but but bringing a consciousness to the relationship that you have with that substance, um, and even noticing when you reach for it, can be such a gateway to exploring, um, to exploring, um, to exploring uh, yourself, and also yeah, the, as I said, the relationship you have to whatever substance you tend to reach for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that it's, it's such a, it's, it's such an empowering idea to say, okay, like just anytime we learn about ourselves and our internal states and, and the things that are, lie beneath that, like they call it in psychology, like in that black box, like the part of that we can't access consciously. Um, it's windows into that. Um, and that's always going to be valuable. It's always going to be valuable because as you said, I mean, it's up to you to judge what your relationship with the various substances are. Mm-hmm. As you said, there are, there's a beneficial use to many of these substances. And so it depends if you, are you happy with the way that you use um, alcohol, for example? Are you happy with the way that you um, use sugar, for example? Like, are you, are you okay with that? Like, it's mm-hmm. such a good exercise to check in and see if you are, because if you're not, like, one what I want to sort of bring in here, um, Jamie, is we've talked about what is the role of the soul in this? Because I think that our souls, our very essence, really will, is driving the judgment we have about the relationship we're, we've got with various substances. Because when we're out of integrity with our values, with ourselves, with our soul and its mission, our true, um, our, our true essence, then we develop shame. Mm-hmm. And shame can be, um, shame is such a big emotion associated with substance use. Yeah. Yeah, shame is probably one of the ones that keeps... It's one of the ones that actually keeps people in long-term recovery quiet because there is such shame associated with saying, you know, either I am currently dealing with an addiction or I had an addiction in the past. And that is, is unfortunate. And that, and I think that you're right when you say, like, I talk about the black box, but I think 
the soul resides within there. And I think um, it's really that deep answer. And you say, like, checking in and saying, like, am I happy? Making sure that that answer is really true. It takes a little bit of a, of a deep soul search to be like, you know what, no. <laughs> um, and, and I think that it's, it does come down to the individual. And I think in general, when people are successful at coming out the other side of their addiction, however they choose to do so, um, there's such a, a, a lack of research on some of this, but the research that has been done shows that purpose in life, that meaning, um, that close relationships with others, positive relationships with others are the commonalities of things uh, that people find pull them through the other side of that addiction. And for me, that purpose and meaning speaks to that soul. Mm. So yeah, fine. So 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 I so mm, is that so? So we know that actually, uh, if someone can find their purpose, find find their find meaning for their lives, they're more successful in maintaining sobriety, or at least maintaining recovery, which may also still include that relapse or, or slips and bips. Um, and sobriety um, and recovery are not necessarily synonymous. Um, not all recovery requires abstinence. Um, so that's an interesting um, caveat, but it really is. And, and, and again, there is a severe lack of research on this end of, of addiction and recovery. Um, but if you look at um, the, the programs or the people that find themselves successful, so uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, I have a lot of different feelings about them, but they work for a lot of different people. And one of the main pillars of that is that change to becoming a sponsor. And for me, that speaks to purpose and meaning because it's no longer about you and your use. You're in active service to somebody else and service to others and bringing help and meaning to others is one of the greatest sources of purpose and meaning that we humans have. And I feel like if we were able to put strong enough study and research dollars behind it, we may find that purpose and meaning is the mechanism of change for uh, recovery. I can't claim that yet. <laughs> that is a hypothesis, um, untested and unproven, but I have a strong feeling that that is the common element to people who are successful in coming into recovery. And really that comes back again to the why so you know why why is it important for you to address the, your relationship to whatever substance you are evaluating is it getting in the way of you um showing up in uh in your purpose and um, is it getting in the way of 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 really uh, being able to experience true meaning and why is it why why is it important for you um to to um focus focus on 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 the use of of, of whatever um, substance or, or even just habits that you've gotten into um yeah. that will really drive the it sounds like that really will drive um all of our success in whatever change that we 
want to make in our lives. Yeah, because it makes the steps a little bit easier because like I said, our brains learn through that reward system and through that hit of dopamine that we get when something good happens. It feels good. And when you take steps that are in line with your true purpose or in line with your soul or in line with your vision, it feels good. Um, and if it feels good, you're more likely to do it again. And no, it's not going to give you the same super high bump that you're going to get if you're actually doing bumps, but it's going to be more sustainable and it's going to not end up with that drastic crash after. So the artificial bumps are the highest of the highs, but they come with a flip side. The, there was a really famous movie from the UK, um, Human Traffic, and it was like when the come down uh, outweighs the party, that's when you know it's time to stop. And and I think that that is that is another tell. Like when when it's too hard the next day, maybe it's maybe that's when you check your behavior too. Mhm, mhm, mhm. Yeah. Great. I mean, I think we've covered a lot. I'm just going to have a, a look to see that we've, because, um, yeah, because I mean, you did you did your your master's research on um, on how people flourish or do people flourish after mm-hmm. their addiction, and what did you find in in your research there? So I wanted to do a full dissertation on what it meant to flourish after um, experiencing addiction or specifically in long-term recovery from addiction. And what I found was there wasn't enough information to be able to do a full dissertation on that. So what I ended up doing was um, building the case for studying flourishing after addiction Um, because it's not something that is really looked at. And I think that if we were to look at similar to positive psychology, so when positive psychology came onto the, to awareness, it's been around forever, but when it first came to um, be popularized, they started saying, okay, traditionally psychology has looked at people who are in a deficit of something, who are languishing, and how do we bring them to functioning? And, and what are the mechanisms of that? There's a whole other side of people in the world who are flourishing. And what positive psychology did is look at that and say, what are they doing? How are they flourishing? And, and how can we take that and say somebody who's simply functioning and say, hey, that person up there who's flourishing does these things inherently in your life. Maybe if you do them too, you may be able to experience a little bit more functioning or flourishing. The addictions world is in a very similar place. We've looked very intensely um, with MRIs and a lot of studies um, as to what happens when you are in addiction and how to bring you to that functioning. And then there's like one or two years where they study recovery, but then there's nothing. And there may be one or two studies that look at it, but there is people who are flourishing after addiction. We just don't necessarily hear from them because of that stigma, because of that shame. And the more those people speak up, like you hear now a lot, Russell Brand is is actually one of the people who 
I don't know if he'd define himself as flourishing, but from an external point of view, he's doing very well after his addiction and he's very open about that. Um, Brene Brown is another one. She is a, a huge well-being researcher, shame researcher, who is also in long-term recovery. So there are people who are now starting to speak. So in my mind, there are people out there who have to, just by numbers, like it's statistically impossible to have nobody who is flourishing after addiction. Um, we just don't talk about it. And we don't talk about it a lot because there is a huge industry around the recovery industry uh, for addiction, a for-profit industry who um, don't like talking about the fact that the vast majority of people who enter into addiction come out the other side. The challenge is, is that the behaviors and the substances that people use are very risky and a lot of people don't live to come out the other side. That is a big challenge and a big problem, but there is generally a lifetime of addiction. Um, I believe cocaine has a five to 10 year span that people generally find themselves addicted and then move on out of it. Um, so the vast majority of people do come out the other side. It's just how do we make sure that their entire lives aren't destroyed either physically, mentally, socially, or financially in that time. Which, which supports the case <coughs> um, for um, uh, damage limitation programs like safe needle exchanges, um, et cetera, um, to support people going through the period of time that they go through the addiction for in the knowledge that that will, um, that will, uh, in all likelihood, it sounds like burn out, um, as their life moves, um, moves forward. And that, mm -hmm. that's surprising to me, um, because as, um, as we sort of spoke before, I was under the impression that this was a sort of permanent, um, disease that 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 people were were left with which gives this sort of hopelessness and helplessness to the person involved exactly. and really doesn't empower um them to understand that they're they they that they do have control uh, mm -hmm. with the right support in order to support themselves in this time but there is the there is the um there, there is a there isn't a light, I think, at the end of the tunnel. There is a light people. at the end of the tunnel, yeah, yeah. And because that's not well known or well advertised, it, not only do they sort of feel hopeless and helpless, but it also, I think we treat, um, I think we treat them in a similar light, like it's a sort of hopeless situation. And there's a lot of resistance, especially uh, amongst people who are in recovery to... Um, to say that they're recovered because there's a fear that if you do that, you let your guard down and the addiction comes and beats you over the head again. And, and because it's that persistent, permanent brain disease that, that kind of hangs over them. And, and maybe we can borrow from the medical model a little bit and, and give some of that hope. So, um, Many people would say that there there is uh, always a chance that somebody who has had cancer can have that return, but we don't. Um, we that would be a horrible thing to live the rest of your life 
constantly being in fear that your cancer is going to come back. The same thing is for addiction. And if you're constantly living in fear that it's going to come back, how do you fully live your life and flourish? And so, um, the medical model for cancer is when you've passed a certain level, certain amount of years, certain amount of tests of being clear, you get declared, I don't, you probably know better than I, that you're in remission or you're, you've passed some sort of threshold where it doesn't really need to be the forefront of your thought. It's always going to be there. You're always going to have it in your head that this is a thing that could happen, but it's not driving every decision you make. And I feel like the recovery world would benefit a lot from having a, a switch maybe into long-term recovery or some sort of languaging that gives you hope that you don't always have to. I think one of the big things that they use in some recovery is that your addiction is always around the corner doing push-ups waiting to get you. So you always have to be aware which is anxiety provoking, which only makes me want to use more. <laughs> so I think if we, if we use the medical model to, to the, what it's good for, which is giving people some sort of pathway and some sort of hope, if we can use some, some of that, there is benefit. But I think just reevaluating how we define addiction and people who are dealing with addiction, um, there's so much bad lingo for, for people, but at the end of the day, they are people who are dealing with something. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 uh, yeah, again, we come back to, to compassion, don't we? And, and the importance of that. Um, so yeah, well, thank, thank you so, so much, Jamie, for your wisdom here. Um, uh, I think the, um, so, so I'm just going to, so thank you so much, Jamie, uh, for, for your time uh, and sharing your knowledge and expertise on, um, on behavior change and how we can apply, how we can all apply the same principles to our lives and we're setting a new, new year's resolutions and also how we can think about addiction, um, in a slightly different way, um, uh, with a bit more compassion um, and also um, in a way which recognizes, um, you know, the factors that make us, that, that perhaps drive our substance use and how we can interrupt those to change our relationship to them um, and, and, and that really being a, a gateway to, um, to health here exactly it has been my absolute pleasure i i love um being able to talk about this and and to bring more awareness and hopefully um spur some some conversation or some more thought um yeah and i guess it really comes down to ice cube being right you have to check yourself before you wreck yourself <laughs> 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 I love that. Thank you so much, Jamie. Thank you. Thank you for listening, Body, Mind, Soul Seekers. If you want to connect with trusted alternative therapists, learn more about what they do and how they can help you, check out my new holistic healthcare platform, The Witchy Women. Or if you are a holistic healer that wants to serve and help more people, book in a discovery call with me. Find more details at thewitchywomen.com. To show your support for this podcast, please share it with a friend or leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. 
It really does make a difference. Thank you all so much. Until next time.